0: Alex Good morning, Arcadia. Yeah, okay. All right, it's not that good. I get it. All right. Good to see you. If you are here for the first time, my name is Frank, and uh, as Tom would say last week, I'm the primary communicator here. Uh, I wasn't here last week. Tom was here, Uh, and we are glad that you are here. Um, First of all, I want to say, I got a couple things before I get started, but while I'm talking, if you want something to do, you can be turning to Romans chapter 2 because that's where uh, we will be today. But uh, it is uh, Memorial Day weekend. I just want to mention, uh, appreciate all of you who have, uh, uh, have served or are currently serving our country uh, in the military. We just want to honor you and respect the fact that uh, uh, you have or, or uh, have, uh, are doing that. Uh, also, just to uh, uh, mention anybody who has lost a family member or a friend through um, the service, uh, just want, again, want to bring that up, and uh, we just say that we appreciate that, and and it's an important weekend in that regard. Um, my father, who is 92 years old, served <coughs> for three years during World War II in the Pacific Theater uh, on the Destroyer Farragut, and um, interesting, I, I didn't even know this existed, but... Uh, last week he was asked to participate in something called the Honor Flight, where they take, uh, uh, this, this year they, from Phoenix, they took uh, uh, 20 World War II veterans to Washington, D.C. this whole past week to uh, honor them and to let them hang out in Washington, D.C. My older brother went with him to kind of take care of him. You can't go, uh, if you're a World War II vet, you can't go on this flight unless somebody goes with you to take care of you, and that was my older brother's uh job so that was he was there with 20 other veterans of world war ii the youngest of whom turned 90 while they were there he had his birthday uh there so uh 20 90 year olds in washington dc that must have snarled traffic up pretty bad so uh anyway just all of this going on this weekend i just want to acknowledge that and make sure that you understand we appreciate your service um having said service what a segue this is uh, a couple weeks ago i mentioned that we are uh, changing our schedule in our downstairs in our children's department and as a result, people who uh, have a schedule that enables them to serve during the school year, a lot of them can't during the summer, and so we're looking f- still for people who can serve during the summer. And so we would appreciate it if, if we need about four more people down there uh, to be able to serve children's ministry during the summer. And so if you could do that, we would really appreciate it, and, and you need to go down and see Linda Longmire and uh, let her get you set up and put to work Uh, serving the rest of the faith community in that capacity helping in our uh, children's ministry we would really appreciate that Uh, last thing I want to mention and that leads us perfectly into what we're gonna talk about today is I was gone last week I was up in uh, Wisconsin on a a little study break and uh, we were so excited to be able to bring in Tom Schrader uh, to speak last week Tom is the uh, founding pastor of the Gilbert Redemption uh, congregation so it's our largest congregation. It's also our oldest congregation, and, and uh, Tom has had a tremendous impact on my life and on Jackie, my wife's l- uh, life. Um, he's been a part of our lives for a long, long time, and, and it was just great to be able to have him come in. It had been two years since he had spoken at Arcadia, and so uh, he really appreciated the, uh, the opportunity to come in and speak, and I'm glad that you guys responded so well. I landed Sunday Afternoon at the airport, and turned on my phone, and I mean literally, it was just blown up with text messages from people saying that Tom was really good, and you are all really uh, blessed by him. If you weren't here, I would uh, encourage you to get the podcast and, and listen to that. And and I will tell you, one of the things that I really appreciated about Tom's message last week was uh, he made sure that even though he was doing just verses one through five of chapter two, he made sure that we kept that within the, the grander context of what Paul is trying to talk to us about in Romans 118 through 318. That that Paul has a much larger argument that he is making in these first three chapters of Romans. And that argument is that none of us is uh, none of us has an excuse for the fact that we have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wage of sin is death there is no way out of that except through the gospel of jesus christ that's his his major point that he's making in these three chapters and we have to keep that in mind as we work our way through this letter verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph today we're only looking at At uh, six verses, uh, verse six through eleven, and and it's just a tiny little, as as Tom would say, subpoint of the larger context of what Paul is trying to do, and so we have to keep that uh, in mind. And so, uh, thinking along those lines, what I want to do is is go back. I know Alessi just read the paragraph six through eleven. I want to go back and read one through eleven again to help us get a little bit broader context within. Romans 1:18 through 3:18 there's actually a sub argument in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2 that Paul is making. So and then we're going to break it down further and just look at the middle paragraph and kind of wrap up that sub argument next week with verses 12 through 16. So turn to Romans chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Paul has just gotten done with Romans chapter 1, where he talks about just the depths of depravity that we will go to in our sin. So it's the the argument against the the heathen. And he moves in now to chapter 2, where he kind of changes his focus. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So Paul opens this section in chapter 1 by saying, we're all without excuse, those of us who suppress the truth, and, and by suppressing the truth, practice unrighteousness and ungodliness, uh, we're all gonna be subject to the judgment of God. Now he moves on to a different group of people who clearly think that they might be exempt from the judgment of God because they're moral. Uh, th- they don't practice uh, this this lifestyle of thoroughgoing debauchery, uh, of open and defiant rebellion to God. No, they've decided to rebel against God by becoming moralists. They're the person that... that has a construct of life that they think they're pretty good and that gives them the right to look at other people and start to judge their behavior and judge them. And by judging them, they feel better about themselves. And that hasn't changed in 2,000 years, right? We all still do that today. I am I am uh, really good at judging the behavior of other people in order to make me feel better. I, I, I'm really good at telling Jackie that if she doesn't pick up her end of the deal in this marriage thing, we're, we're gonna have some problems because, and that makes me feel good about all the stuff I'm doing for her in marriage, right? Come on, guys, come on. He's got give me a little opening here. But he's saying, even you moralizers, even those of you that think you've got this goodness thing figured out, you're also, without excuse for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things it's amazing how often I can find fault in somebody else and judge them usually in my mind for it and the reality is I do the same thing and the reason I'm an expert on the other person doing it is because I know how to do it myself and I do it all the time myself I just figure I'm getting away with it and nobody notices but I can spot it in other people really well See, we know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice these things and yet do them yourself, you see how Paul just refuses to give us any wiggle room? He constantly repeats himself to make sure you understand y- there, is no, there, there is no daylight for anybody, Nowhere, nobody's going to slip through these cracks. You need to understand that. So he keeps repeating that. He says, Do you suppose, O oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, you will not, I will not. Or do you presume, verse 4, on the riches of his kindness, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you were not here last week, uh, tom's explanation of verse four alone is worth you getting the podcast and listening to his message he did a magnificent job of unpacking what verse four means and essentially what it what it says just in summary is that let's say we're going along and we're kind of sinning and we're thinking we must be getting away with this because we haven't really experienced any consequences to our sin god hasn't zapped us or anything paul is saying no 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 his kindness god's kindness his patience with you his forbearance in your sin should not be taken as an indication that he's gonna let you slide, but rather it's supposed to draw you to him in repentance. The proper response to God's patience with you, and he is a patient God, but as Tom said, not infinitely patient, the proper response to his patience is to repent, to turn from your sin and come running into the arms of Jesus Christ that's what he's saying there and then verse 5 but because of your heart and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed now this is really important for us to get especially those of you who were here during the last half of chapter 1 and you heard us talk about God's wrath uh, in our lives from the perspective of uh, the fact that it's a temporal wrath it's a it's a current wrath it's a wrath that we experience as a result and as a consequence of us being mired in our sin Uh, we sin and we do it because uh, we think it brings us and it does it brings us pleasure it brings us power it brings us some sense of control whatever it is we sin the problem with sin though is that the upside of sin only lasts for a season And eventually we will begin to suffer the consequences, uh, the the depression of being under the rule of sin in our lives. And that is one way that God's wrath is revealed to us. It's a temporal current wrath that's being revealed. But here in verse 5, we get introduced to a new wrath, another kind of wrath that God is going to reveal to us. And that is going to be his wrath in the final day, the judgment day. We're going to talk more about this again next week talk a little bit about it today. Tom talked about it last week. There's also that final day of judgment, that that day when God comes and deals with all wickedness and all evil. And and that's when hell comes into play in a very large way. And of course, then the new Jerusalem comes in as well. There is going to be a day when there is gonna be that that, uh, very difficult, very tough sort of thunderbolts from heaven kind of wrath from God. And, and, and Paul is saying, listen, just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. And in fact, the longer you ignore it, the more you're storing up for yourself on that day. And it's not going to be good. And of course, the answer is to be in Christ. The answer is the gospel. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And that's why he talks about it also in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, that the wage of sin is death, but, but we have eternal life through the propitiation of sins of christ on the cross and then we move into our paragraph today he will render god will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality he will give eternal life but for those who are self-seeking they do not and do not obey the truth they obey unrighteousness there will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek Uh, we need to remember that the Jews had the privileged position of God revealing the law to them but that also means that with that privilege comes responsibility they are the first to be saved but they are also the first to suffer under the judgment as well and that's why Paul keeps repeating this refrain through these first uh, three chapters So he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And that's sort of the, uh, that's the punchline to this paragraph, which we will uh, eventually uh, get to. Uh, And one of the things that we need to remember about this wrath that Paul is talking about here is ultimately that wrath was also poured out on Jesus at the cross. So let me just stop here and make sure that those of you who know Jesus, those of you who are in Christ, you understand that the wrath that was deserved for you, that was reserved for you, that was gonna be sent your way has already been poured out on Jesus on the cross and that is cause for celebration for us. One way or another, wrath will be poured out on sin. It's either on Christ at the cross which if you're in Christ, you get that substitution from him, or it will be poured out on you if you die apart from Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel. That is the essence of the gospel. And if you're not in Christ, that would be a very good reason to look closely at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So now, one of the things that Tom brought up last week is is, uh, there's an interesting scholarly debate about exactly who it is that Paul is addressing in chapter 2. There's some confusion there, and and I understand that. We know for certain, Mounts, Robert Mounts, one of the scholars, tells us, we know for certain that starting in verse 17 of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 2, for sure he's dealing with the Jews, but the question comes in what about verses 1 through 16? Is he dealing with all people who practiced uh, this pious uh, sort of self-righteous judgment of others? Or is he only talking to the Jews there who believe that by uh, their special position with God, they are going to be able to avoid the judgment of God? And and I think it's an interesting academic question. And Tom dealt with that a little bit last week, and, and I agree with his answer. Whatever the academic question is, the application is really for all of us. All of us belong in chapter one, the idea that we suppress the truth and by that practice unrighteousness and ungodliness at some time in our lives. All of us belong in that. All of us also belong in this category of chapter 2 of being the moralizer who is practicing our own judgment against other people. Whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, it doesn't matter. We all practice this moralistic judgment of others. And of course, here is the irony. Here's the irony. The irony is that usually when we judge others, we will judge them according to our own standards of goodness, But we rarely judge ourselves according to the perfect standards of God's goodness and holiness. And that's the irony. And that's one of the things that Paul is trying to point out here. And I know some people say, well, wait a minute, though. What's wrong with morality? Why is Paul so bent about morality? And for that matter, why are you, Frank, so bent on this morality? Isn't morality a good thing? Uh, Wouldn't we want to live in a moral society where there isn't uh, chaos and all that? And I would say that's a good question. And I would prefer to live in a moral society than one with with chaos, but there are a couple of problems with morality, and this is what Paul is trying to point out here. Number one, morality does not save us in the eternal sense. We cannot be reconciled to God Uh, morality does not reconcile us to God. Morality is not a solution for our separation from God. And so eternally morality doesn't do us any good. It just sort of cleans us up a little bit while we're here. That's it. And, And then the second problem with morality is the fact that those who think they are moral and then project that on others, those people tend to be filled with the absolute first and worst sin, which is pride. If you're somebody who is a moralizer and you're looking around and pointing at everybody else and never yourself, you're just filled with pride and you are also filled with a false sense of superiority and self-security. And there's nothing in scripture that says that you should feel secure about yourself, that there's anything in you that's gonna be able to make you uh, good enough and save you. That's the problem, and Paul wants to expose that so that we will go rushing to uh, Christ. So the answer to our spiritual problems is not uh, moralism. The answer to our spiritual problems in chapter 1 is not hedonism. The answer to our spiritual problems later on in chapter 2 is not going to be religion. Religion. Even religion doesn't help us. And the answer to our spiritual problems is not knowing or having the law. We're gonna get to that later in chapter two and into chapter three as well. There's only one answer. The answer is Jesus Christ, Christ alone. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he ends this section in chapter three by writing this, starting in in, uh, verse 23 he says for all are, have sinned and fall short of the glory of god that's the bad news but all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus whom god put forward as a propitiation by his blood the only answer is christ christ crucified christ resurrected the gospel it's the only thing one other thing uh, uh, Romans chapter 2 is also written in response to the person who says about Romans chapter 1, well, Romans chapter 1 was really rugged, and it was rugged, right? But th- there, there are people who will say, Romans chapter 1 is really rugged, but, but Paul's not talking to me when he's doing that Romans chapter 1 thing. No, that's not true. He's talking to us, and he's talking to all of us as a result. We don't like that Romans chapter 1 thing, and we're very quick. You know, he listed 21 sins in verses 29 through 31. I only practice 18 of them, so he wasn't talking to me. That's, that's, that's how far we will go to try to excuse ourselves. No, he's talking to all of us. Paul's purpose for chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 is to make sure that everyone understands that you're no different than anyone else. We are all by nature children of wrath by nature, and it's only through Christ that we become adopted sons of God and daughters of God. Uh, apart from christ all of us will suffer the ultimate and final judgment of god apart from christ we are all in the same theological boat we are all without excuse we are all condemned not only by our sin but we're also condemned by our judgment of others paul is saying that you're condemned when you judge others okay romans uh, 2 1 through 16 is a great example of what's known as the self-serving bias here's what the self-serving bias is the self-serving bias is our tendency our nature our proclivity to look at the bad behavior of somebody else and assign that to their character we see somebody else engaged in sin and we'll say well that makes sense because they're a bad person they're an immoral person they're dishonest they they don't have any integrity but When it comes to our bad behavior, when it comes to our sin, we never assign the motivation to that to our character, but rather we assign it to our circumstances. When we sin and when we behave badly, we say, well, uh, look at the situation I was in. I didn't have any choice. What else was I supposed to do? Anybody in my situation would have done exactly what I did. That's the self-serving bias. We always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt while we judge and condemn other people. That's what Paul is getting at here. And we can look at it that way all we want, but the fact remains, God's wrath is revealed against everyone who suppresses the truth apart from Christ, and that would be all of us apart from Christ. Well, what about the seemingly repetitive nature of chapters one and two? It seems like all Paul is doing for the, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. You stink, you stink, you stink, you stink. I get that. I mean, we're just pounding away week after week. But Paul does this in order to dramatize the fact that while we're willing to admit that we're sinful, you know, eh, nobody's perfect. Okay, while we're willing to admit that, we do not want to acknowledge or deal with the depth and gravity of our sin. We're willing to say we're not perfect, but to really deal with just how wicked and dark our sin is, we're not interested in that. And he's dealing with our tendency, our proclivity to make very good excuses we think for our behavior. This is so this this repetition dramatizes uh, that. Here's an example. So y'all would know the name Al Capone, right? You don't know him personally, but you. I don't even know but you know the name Al Capone. Really bad guy. He's a gangster. He's a murderer. He abused women. I mean, this would be like a, he'd be a guy that we could say, you're no Al Capone, right? No, we're not. Oh, And you feel good about yourself, right? Okay. Well, here's a guy we know is very bad. Even he has this ability to justify his sin. Listen to what he said of himself i've spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures of life helping them to have a good time and all i get for it is abuse and the exist of a hunt existence of a hunted man so in al capone's mind he's the victim he is the victim Uh, there was a movie that came out i think it was 1990 I read the book. The book was really good. I, I liked Nicholas Pelagi. The book was Wise Guys. The movie that was made from the book was called Goodfellas. I'm not supposed to admit that I saw the movie. Maybe some of you can. But anyway, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie, it is the true story of Henry Hill, Tommy DeVito, and, and uh, Jimmy Conway, uh, played by Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, and, and Robert De Niro true story of these guys who get involved in the, the lucchese crime family in new york in the 60s and 70s and eventually the thing blows up and they all get arrested and when they get arrested henry hill the guy that was played by ray Lota, he decides that he's going to turn against all of his friends and he's going to testify against them in exchange for immunity from prosecution and he entered into the witness protection program okay now in during henry hill's career with the lucchese crime family because he was Irish, he could never become a made guy. He was just a soldier, but he was, uh, he either committed or was involved in, participated in 28 murders during his career. And he was granted immunity, moved out somewhere in the West and, and, and got a new name, a new assumption. So well. 25 years after this happened so 2005 he decides to write a book about what's happened to henry hill in the 25 years since this happened and so he writes this book so i pick up the book and i read it it was very interesting by the way if you're wondering he and karen his wife eventually got divorced who didn't see that coming but uh, at any rate uh, he writes i think it's in chapter 7 he begins to talk about how while I, while I started this pro- process and this program, I started to see some counselors and some, some psychiatrists and psychologists, and I was eventually diagnosed with adult ADD, adult attention deficit disorder. And then he spends the rest of this chapter explaining why that is what caused him to murder 28 people. Do you see how, and, and I'm reading this going, are you kidding? You got distracted and started tell killing people? Is that your explanation? But that was his explanation. It's because I had this. I'm not responsible. It's because I had this condition that I, was, that I started murdering people. Do you see our proclivity for excusing ourselves, for not appreciating the depth of our depravity and our sin? This is what Paul is trying to do here. Luther said it well. Paul's point in this section is to magnify our sin, not because, Paul, because sin isn't really that bad and Paul wants to make, uh, make, uh, exaggerate it and make a bad case for it, but because we don't realize or appreciate how bad our sin is. That's what he's trying to do here. So a little bit more close, close uh, look at 6 through 11. The way this paragraph starts, Paul says, God will render to each one according to his works. And it sounds like Paul is suddenly beginning to teach a works-based salvation here when he says that. But again, we have to remember the greater context. That's not what he's doing here. The key to understanding verse 6 is laid out in verses 7 through 10. It's the principle of sowing and reaping, which Paul talks about also in Galatians 6. A- and the key here is what is empowering us to sow and reap? W- what is it that causes us to sow and reap? You look again at verse 7, he says, For those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Those words that Paul is using there are gospel words. Uh, that, wor- that word that we translate for uh, patience and well-doing that that means steadfastness perseverance and endurance that can only be powered by the gospel of christ in you by the resurrected christ by the holy spirit in you paul makes the same argument in galatians chapter 6 as i said verses 7 through 9 where he says do not deceive yourself god is not mocked you will reap what you sow you will gain back what you invest in okay And then he says it this way, he says, those who sow to the flesh, those who sow according to their fleshly, earthly desires, will reap from the flesh corruption, that word corruption literally means destruction, you will perish. But those who sow to the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Well, that's exactly the argument. That principle is the same principle that Paul is giving us here in this paragraph 6 through 11. It's the idea of sowing and reaping. You can see a little bit of it playing out also in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where James says, Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance, endurance, patience. The testing of your faith. The only reason you can do this is because you're in Christ, because you're being powered by the gospel. This is what Paul is trying to get at. It's not a works based salvation. It's what are you being empowered by? Are you being powered by yourself or by the resurrected Christ in you? And so he says this one path here is powered by Christ, but then the other path, the one described in verses 8 and 9, let me reread verses 8 and 9. This is the other path that people take. He says, but for those who are self-seeking, there's the key. But for those who are self-seeking, they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so again, it's very similar to what Paul says in Galatians 6. The path of the evildoer is powered by selfishness, by us. And that key to that path is in verse eight, for those who are self-seeking. Anyone who is not in Christ is gonna be self-seeking all the time. Uh, There's a theologian that I have followed for literally 40 years now. I followed this guy even before I was a Christian. I was following him, I was reading his stuff, I was watching the stuff that uh, he would present. He's got some great insights. I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in what he has to say. I would suggest that his theology is not the best theology. It's not the most accurate all the time. I would say it's probably not even very biblical, but I, I just find it refreshing, and, and he gives me some insights. Uh, maybe you've heard, his name is Woody Allen. Has anybody heard of this guy? Okay, so I, here's, here's what Woody Allen said back in the 70s, okay? He said, there are two kinds of people in the world, the horrible and the miserable. And he says, hey, here's the horrible. The, the horrible people are those who have befallen some massive tragedy in their life. They, they've lost a limb. They, 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 they're blind or they're deaf or just something awful. Has, they have terminal cancer, whatever it is. I don't know how they get through life. They're an inspiration to me. They're, they're just amazing. And then everybody else is miserable. And you should be thankful that you're miserable. That's what he says. Well, I would agree that there are only two people in the world, two kinds of people in the world. I don't know about the rest of that stuff, but I would agree there's only two kinds of people in the world. But here's what the Bible says. There are those who are in Christ and those who are in themselves. That's it. A- and Paul is trying to point that out here. A- and, 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 and so he, 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 he tells us that that, that, that you have to be in Christ if you're not going to, if you don't want to reap this judgment and wrath of God. And by the way, this idea that you're either in Christ or in yourself, that's not a construct of the church. It's not a construct of man. It's not a construct of theologians even. It's a construct of what Christ himself taught every encounter with christ produced a decision you're either for him and with him or you're against him you're either in christ or you're not you either accept him or you reject him every one of every one of those things if you w- t- turn to your left in your bible to matthew chapter 19 it is a great example of what we're talking about here Matthew chapter 19 pretty familiar story if you've been around chapter 19 starting at verse 16. I'm a little tired. I'm gonna sit for a second. And behold, a man came to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so He's saying, how can I be saved? How can I be delivered? How can I be reconciled to God? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So he clarifies that right out of the gate. He says, only God is good. Okay? So and then he says, if you would enter life, if you would enter the kingdom of God, keep the commandments. And the man said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother, father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him all of these I have kept what do I still lack and Jesus said if you would be perfect Go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have a treasure have treasure in heaven and come follow me When the young man heard this he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions Now one of the things you have to understand here is Jesus is not preaching or teaching salvation by keeping the law salvation by keeping the commandments Instead, what he's teaching here is he's demonstrating to this young man, no matter how good you think you are, you can't be good enough for God. You can't keep all the commandments. And he did that by pointing out that last thing. All right, you've kept all these other commandments, but you've broken the first one. You have other gods in your life besides God. And those gods would be your wealth and your money and your success and your fortune. So Jesus is merely pointing out to him you can't be saved by keeping the commandments. You need to know me. And then look what he says to his disciples, verses 23 through 26. He said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, there was a great sucking sound because they couldn't believe what Jesus just said. Because in their context, to look around at people with wealth and success, they assumed that they were blessed by God, which meant they were getting automatic entrance into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is blowing that paradigm up now. He's saying, no, 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 no. That doesn't get you into heaven. Only knowing me, the Messiah, gets you into the kingdom of God. And so the disciples looked at each other and and were stunned. And they said, well, then who can be saved? They're not saved. Who can be saved? And Jesus gives them the punchline. He looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Bless you. You have to understand that what Paul is trying to get at is that you have to be in Christ. And the bottom line is, is if you know Christ, your life will be transformed. There will be fruit. If you don't, your life's going to be a mess. And I know it may not always look like a mess. I know there's people who can look at a a person's life who doesn't know Jesus and look at it from the outside and go, it seems like they're they're okay. The truth is we only get a snapshot. We can't see everything that's really going on. The truth is they're whitewashed tombs, just like we are on Sunday mornings most of the time, okay? The truth is we don't know what's going on internally with them. We rarely get the full picture, but God does have the full picture. He knows it all. Next week, the punchline at the end of that paragraph, verse 16, is that God even knows and judges our secrets, which we are sure God do- doesn't know anything about. This is really important. God has the full picture, and we will sow what we, uh, we will reap what we sow. And then Paul uses this principle to set up this punchline uh, for this paragraph, verse 11. God will not show partiality in the greek the word prosopolempsia literally means face favoritism face favoritism and and here's essentially what it means Uh, you and i know that generally speaking when somebody is not present with us we have the tendency to have the ability to speak more negatively of somebody who's not present with us we'll say things about that person that we would never say to their face right right there's some people won't even look me in the eyes right now this is amazing okay It's it's very similar to to something in the last 15 years that's been developed because of all the the digital communication advances that we've made. It's called the disinhibition effect. It's the fact that you and I fully admit that we will say things uh, to people through digital communication, digitally mediated communication, through texting, Facebook, emailing, Twitter, blogging, that we would never say to a person if we were physically face-to-face with them. That mediation lowers our inhibitions. The fact that they're not present with us lowers our inhibitions to say the things that we would never be able to say to them in person. Here's the problem. We then take that principle, we know that about ourselves, we then take that and we project it onto God. And we think and rationalize in our minds. This is what Paul is saying. We think and rationalize in our minds. When we're face to face with God, when he looks into my face, when I am present with him, he's gonna look at me and he's gonna wilt. He's a tough guy when he's talking through Paul. He's a tough guy sending Jesus down to save me from my sins. But when he looks at me, he's gonna, he's gonna go, oh, okay, you have I talk tough about you, but you have a pass. And Paul's saying, no. He doesn't show any face favoritism. He doesn't show any favoritism based on who you are, based on what you've done, based on your history, based on your family, based on what kind of car you drive, based on the fact that you've done any good deeds. He doesn't show any favoritism according to that. He's gonna judge us all exactly the same. And he judges us all, and he judges perfectly, and he judges correctly, and he judges fully. You don't get a pass for any reason. And, and the bottom line is the issue is this. You either know Jesus or you don't. And we're all called to that repentance by his kindness. That's the punchline of of chapter 2, verse 4. His kindness should lead us to repentance. And that repentance should be for all of us those who still need to trust Jesus, those who haven't crossed that line of faith. But that repentance is also true for those of us who are already Christians. We don't repent once and then that's it. Luther said, All of life is a life of repentance. The gospel is not mild moral reform. It is death and resurrection. And in order to have death and resurrection in our lives on a daily basis, we must repent on a daily basis. So I want to close with this discussion. The culmination of the first two paragraphs of chapter 2 is a really good question that all of us wrestle with, if not out loud, at least in our own minds. And here's the question. Am I a good person? we all wrestle with this and we all desire to be good i desire to be good and i desire that other people think of me as being good i desire that people would look at me and that frank he is really altruistic he's got such a servant's heart what a wonderful he's a good guy i that i i and and, you know i think about my memorial service which is not too far off probably compared to 40 years ago and i want that to be a place where goodness is exalted and the world is going to be a worse place because i'm not here And if you're honest with yourselves, you all think the same thing, not about me, but about yourselves. Okay, we we want people to be weeping in the aisles that the goodness of you is gone, okay? We want to be, am I a good person? Do people think of me as good? And we'll do anything to achieve that status. The problem is, is that we hate the biblical answer to that question. And the answer is no. You're not a good person. No one does good no not one that's what we're going to look at in Romans 3 no one is righteous no one seeks after him no one understands but we try every uh, uh, every mechanism possible there is to make us feel like we're a good person We, we try to redefine what good is we relativize what good is we bind it contextually we compare ourselves to others so that we can make the argument that we are good and 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 no matter what we can always find somebody who's worse than us who can make us feel better about ourselves it doesn't have to be manson or capone or henry hill it can be your neighbor you can justify in your own mind that you're better than your neighbor and that makes you better than uh, good enough to be able to get in to heaven but what jesus says to this guy who came seeking eternal life what did he say to him no one is good No one is good, only God is good. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 19th century, in case you were wondering, these questions are not new questions his response to this question why do bad things happen to good people that has confounded many of us for years of course we think we're the only ones who have ever struggled with this they're struggling with this in the 19th century here's spurgeon's answer to why do bad things happen to good people he said that has only ever happened one time in history and the guy it happened to volunteered for the job and that would be jesus christ no one is good No, not one. Only God is good. And once we understand that only God is good, it'll lead us to one of three possibilities. Rebellion, despair, or repentance and submission. That's it. Let's talk a minute about rebellion. We've seen what open, uh, defiant rebellion looks like. That was all of the last half of chapter 1 of Romans. That's open, defiant rebellion. But that's not the only way we rebel against God. There's a rebellion that occurs when we decide that we're going to be good on our own and start judging others. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's also rebellion against God and we engage in all the human endeavors to try to do that. We develop a worldview that coalesces with culture and the and the public sphere. We become cause-centered and we adopt causes and opinions and projects that we know have a, a culturally approved and, and favorable reputation. And then we begin to espouse those to other people. We we rescue this and advocate for that or try to preserve something else and we'll get a bumper sticker and a t-shirt and we say the right things and we give money to the right causes and, and, and we have Hang out with the right people, and we post the right things on our Facebook page, and we tweet the right things, and we say we're a good person. I've told you this story before. Uh, that, that in my old neighborhood, that one Tuesday morning, I made the awful, horrible. Uh, unforgivable sin of taking an empty Gatorade bottle and putting it in the green trash can instead of the blue recycle can, and the lady comes flying across the street from her front yard, screaming and yelling at me about how I am killing the earth, okay? She is a good person. Do you understand that? She is. She's a good, in her mind, she is a good person, and God's gonna honor that. We judge others by this paradigm that we've set up, whatever that paradigm is. It's kind of a passive rebellion. What we're really doing is rebelling against God. But it's a rebellion that says it this way. I don't need God. I know better. I've got this. Of course, we rarely consider that what was good 30 years ago isn't even considered good today. I was alive 30 years ago, and the things that people would say back then, most of them don't play well today and what we're saying today to be good people you know what in another 30 years they may not the people may not look favorably on those here's what we fail to remember times change but god does not times change and the gospel remains the same and paul is trying to get us to that place And our answer is almost always the same when confronted with this reality. A lot of us believe that when we stand before God, what's gonna happen is we're gonna go, "Uh, but I didn't know any better. And at least I tried hard and my intentions were good. You know what that is? That's called justification by ignorance. I was ignorant, therefore I should be justified before God. Nice hope, but it isn't gonna work. It is he's not going to sit there and go, "Oh, you meant well, you tried hard, you're just he's not. He's saying, "No, no, no. I've made it clear to you. Look around you. God is real and you need to understand this. And there is no excuse, there is no exception." Paul's point is he can judge us and he will. We are without excuse. And so the answer is to repent and submit to the gospel. So the question isn't, "Are you a good person?" question is will you give your life to Christ ask the question you should ask yourself what about despair it's true a lot of people look at the standard of God's goodness but rather than seeing the hope of Jesus Christ on the cross and the empty tomb we instead look at that standard of God and we say there's no way I can live up to that and then we go into despair so some people respond by rebelling other people respond by getting depressed and going into despair and the re- here you go this this will this might surprise some of you people who are in despair about the fact that they don't measure up to god's goodness without going to christ they're filled with the sin of pride they're upset that they can't be good enough and that goes again to our our human condition of thinking I got to save myself I got to do this myself somehow I have to be the solution to my problem and Paul is saying you aren't the solution to your problem only Jesus is the solution to your problem that is it but when we realize that we can't be good enough, we, we end up in despair, it's really common. It's the person who says, I need to clean up my life before I present myself to Jesus. By the way, that would be non-Christian or Christian. There are Christians who say the same thing. I haven't been to church lately because I, uh, I've been sinning, and I, uh, so I gotta, I gotta clean up my sin before I can come back to church. Really? Look around the room. Are we perfect? Just, all right, here you go, here you go. Look up here. That's all you need to do. Okay. A little, little tip, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to clean up your act enough. That's the point. You got to come to Christ. That's why the only, the only worthwhile response is the third one. Repent and submit your life to Jesus. Recognize that he is good and that in his son we have righteousness, justification, redemption, and reconciliation. That's for everybody. That's true of everybody, believer and non-believer. And here's what we really have to remember. We are not what we do. We are what he has already done for us. And that's what Paul is trying to get across in these verses. And next week, we'll look at that last paragraph in this first section of chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, and kind of tie a bow on that with that last verse that says he even knows your secrets, and he's going to judge those as well. Let me pray and Sean will come up and get us going into our time of response. God, thank you for the love and grace and mercy that you have for us through your son and that it is the only answer that we have to um, whether we're uh, practicing uh, just uncontrolled sin or whether we're practicing judgment, whatever it is, whether we're a moralist, or a religion, a religious person. God, thank you for your son in giving us your grace through him. We pray it in his name, amen. Amen.